Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. Hello, Leanne. Hello, Dr. Ira. I'm ready for Thanksgiving. That's good. But first, I want to tighten my waistband. Aha. And make sure that I'm in really good shape. And so today's show, we brought in a nutrition expert to help us talk about what's good with dieting, what's bad with dieting, what fads are, what fads are in, what fads are out. And is it all for real? What works? What doesn't? I can't wait to introduce our guest. But first... I hear you've got our weekly rant ready. I do have our weekly rant. I want to. I, I gave Ira a little bit of trouble. This weekly rant, I'm having a hard time getting revved up for hey, it. So you're ranting about I'm me. I'm ranting about Ira. Oh my do god. Okay. No, but but I thought about it, and you know, I do. I do have a little a little beef to rant about today. Okay. So my rant today is: don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. And this is a popular saying these days from my physician colleagues. The mark of popular sayings in 2019 is whether or not it's a meme, right? And this is one of the favorite memes among doctors. You see it printed on shirts and on coffee mugs. Um, and so what are we talking about? It's is the newest new-ish phenomenon of patients looking up their issue, questions, or symptoms on the internet. The problem I feel is not with patients wanting to be educated prior to speaking to an expert. In fact, the world would likely be a better place if we all took a minute to add a little bit of background work to our questions to any expert, physician and landscaper alike. But I think the physician frustration with the Google search is more complicated than that. So let's start by talking about what I believe is one of the more overused words in, my, in recent times, research. Research as a verb is to search or investigate. Yes, this is what I want my patients to do. In my relatively short career, I have still interviewed thousands of patients, and certainly it's a challenge to talk to people who don't have any questions at all because they don't know where to start. So I think it's perfectly reasonable for patients to search online for information prior to seeing their physician. I believe the crux of the physician frustration lies when patients use research as a noun, such as I did my research. Who can blame them? If they researched verb form their questions, why can't they say they've done their research noun form? Is this merely semantics? No, it is not. You see, medical doctors are scientists because not only does that MD or DO degree require four years of scientific study of medicine in what's called medical school, but most of us have a science-based undergraduate degree as well, or at least dozens of scientific prerequisite courses. And science define the term research a little differently. The scientific process, you know, the underlying lesson in that dreaded grade school science fair project was just the beginning. Most of us have taken entire collegiate level courses in the methodology of scientific research with the goal of applying those lessons to every single examination of every single article we will come across for the rest of our lives. And why does that matter to the patient? In short, because the science of medicine requires proof and proof isn't the same as logic. Let me give you an example of the problem. A Google search of the phrase, is steam good for colds, produces 15 hyperlinked results on the first page. The top hits are articles out of alternative medicine sites touting steam to be helpful, common sense remedy, a healthy option, etc. 
Buried on the second page is a New York Times article that references a 2006 article from the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, which combined data from six randomized controlled trials where cold sufferers were exposed to heated water vapors, steam. Now remember, a randomized controlled trial is a particular type of study where patients with a specific set of qualifications are randomly placed into groups where some receive the treatment in question and some do not. This type of study is important because it aims to eliminate bias, or in layman's terms, controlled for the placebo effect. After that, a Cochrane review is a type of literary review intended to provide an up-to-date summary of reliable evidence of benefits and risks by performing a review of published articles to create a recommendation. And so what was the recommendation of the six randomized controlled trials? That STEAM isn't all that helpful. The STEAM groups didn't report any benefit over the non-STEAM groups. So as your physician, what do I expect? Well, let's start with what I don't expect from my patients. I don't expect for you to know what, what qualifies as a randomized controlled trial or case study or even a good experiment. I don't expect you to know how to find the research online buried deep in the second page inside a New York Times article. I don't expect you to have taken classes on scientific research or advanced statistics or calculus or physics for that matter, but I have. So what I do expect from patients is that we have a discussion. I expect you, the patient, to apply your brief Google search and more importantly, your decades of common sense to your problem. And then we together come up with a plan. But you know, it's easier to come up with a plan with a partner who does understand that their Google review does not tell the whole story and who's ready to hear what my trained scientific evaluation of the literature does say. And if I don't know, I'll agree to tell you that too. And what I also expect you're asking me is to tell you what my other patients say. You know, the thousands of patients like you who tell me that their symptoms are this and that and what makes them feel better. And you know what they say? They say steam helps their colds. Literature be damned. And I'll tell you that too, but I won't call it research. So what you're saying then is that good judgment comes from bad judgment sometimes, which comes from experience, and we'll try not to confuse our patients five minutes on the internet with your 12 years of higher scientific and medical edu education. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair game. I like that rant. Thanks. <laughs> because we all face that. We do. I think all professionals face it. And, and I think that term research is really the crux of the issue, that people use it as if it's the same thing as the research that's leading to our recommendations. So I want to introduce the room here. Everyone knows Dr. Leanne. Everyone knows me, Dr. Ira. And Frank Mazapel is off tonight. We've got Carol Wyatt. Carol Wyatt, the station owner, the engineer, the, the, the queen of queens here on the radio. And she's honored us with her presence. And board off this evening. Yes, it's, it's multi-talented group. It's a multi-talented <laughs> group. But our real guest tonight here on Titan or Waistband is Susan Dermarkarian. She's a registered... Uh, let me get this right. Registered dietitian nutritionist. Yes. Okay. That, that's hard to say. And she's been doing it for over 30 years. And she works with Options Family Home Health right here on the Treasure Coast. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. And welcome to the show. Thank you. We're so glad to have you here, particularly right before the holidays, because everyone is going to gain some pounds during this season. And we need to know how to kind of tell our patients and our listeners how to take it off. You see, doctors don't get much training 
Yeah. And that's unfortunate because I would definitely say this is probably the top thing that almost everybody in the office wants to talk about. I think I had maybe four hours of total nutritional training during my four years of medical ed- medical education and none during my residency training. So here again, it's all from experience. And that's why we rely on people like Susan to guide us when a nutrition specialist is needed. So on a daily basis, what types of dietary problems do you deal with? Well, on a daily basis, um, in my home care field, I see patients that have recently recovered from, um, from medical conditions or injury, and they require extra care in the home. And um, so we, we go out and provide those services, whether it be nursing, therapy, or nutrition care. So from a dietary standpoint, patients who have been hospitalized tend to lose a lot of protein. Muscle mass. Yeah. And, and muscle mass. So we check that with certain labs on our patients, uh, albumin and pre-albumin. And if those levels are low, we may call in someone like yourself. Exactly. So when you go into the home and, and talk to these patients, how do you address it? How, how do you, do you, do you look at what they're eating? Do you go through like their cabinets? I do. And you I, do. I've so, been known to do that. So you're the, actually the person that goes through the cabinets and, and through the drawers of, of these patients and see what they're eating. Well, I take a detailed history first and I, you know, get an idea of what they're currently able to do because if, as you know, when you've been in the hospital and you've been ill with an illness, you tend to eat differently than when you're in your healthy state. So it's a good idea to first just take a complete history, see what the issues that they're facing at that point in time and go from there. And are most of your patients fairly healthy eaters or are you pretty much appalled by their dietary choices on a day-to-day basis? Well, if you're talking about when I'm dealing with home care patients, that's very different than when I deal with patients in my own private setting, my own clinical practice, which I do do um, one day a week. And then um, I wouldn't use the word appalled because I think some people just have never had the opportunity to have any real education. I find actually that I'm often surprised at how little education that they've ever had when it comes to dealing with a a disease that they may have had for many years, but have not really had any formal nutrition education. They may, like you say, go on the internet and read something and think, oh, I did that, that didn't work. Or they may get a little bit of information from the doctor, but as you know, your time is very limited. You have to get in, see the patient, diagnose problems, talk about medications. There's a whole lot. You don't have the time to spend an hour like I do and educate people. Um, So I think that that's really important is when you find someone that needs some kind of additional counseling that you um, say this is, you know, a dietitian is the person that can go in and actually spend a good amount of time and uh, talk about the disease and then talk about um, the, the, um, the strategies 
and the interventions that that will help with um, whatever they're experiencing, whether it be diabetes and their blood sugars are elevated, whether it's their lipids, um, their cholesterol, they, you know, they know they have high cholesterol. They have no idea how to manage um, and control the different lipids and what would help their good cholesterol and what would help lower their bad cholesterol. Okay. So for instance, patient comes home from the hospital. They're an overweight patient. Uh, they've got diabetes and they just had a heart attack mm -hmm. and they don't really know what they should be eating. Right. Uh, how long does it take for you and your team of home health care nurses to go in and change their eating habits so that when they follow back up with their physician, who's going to assist them with their medicine and saying, are you following the proper diet? And they go, yes, doctor, I am. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that's for real and maybe that's not. How long is this process of converting patients from an improper diet to a proper diet take? Give us a timeline on what you guys do on a home health basis. Well, the home health basis is, is um, you know, man, it, it's the timing is really determined by um, Medicare guidelines. So if Medicare says we are allowed to be in there for 60 days, then we have that 60 day period to get nursing, therapy, nutrition, could be speech, it could be occupational therapy, all that has to be done in that, that time frame. So you as a dietitian would go in how many times to that patient's home? I might go in just once, twice, but then what I do is I encourage follow-up once they are able to leave their home safely, because home care means that they're unable to leave their home safely and to come out and go to appointments. So um, once that they're deemed to be safe to leave home and they're able to be more independent, I get them to come back in the office. The advertisements that we see on television uh, show very thin people. Models in magazines are generally very thin. Yes. And all food ads and alcohol ads show very fit individuals. But it seems to me Americans are getting fatter and not thinner. And 46 states out of 50 states, the average population is considered overweight. As we move further down south, they're more obese. Uh, the difference between being overweight and being obese is basically a body mass index number. If your body mass index is greater than 25, you're considered overweight. If it's greater than 30, you're considered obese. And if it's greater than 40, you're considered morbidly obese. Do you see fad diets and quick weight loss schemes as being part of the problem? I do, but I wanted to go back for a minute because you mentioned about the advertising. And I think that the, the advertising has definitely distorted what an average person should look like. You just mentioned um, a healthy weight is based on a body mass index. And that is a height to weight ratio, height divided by a weight divided by height ratio. You explained that there's different categories. And so you can be a five foot four woman, 120 pounds, and have a body mass index that's normal, about 20. 
You could also be a five foot four woman that weighs 140 pounds and have a body mass index that's a little bit higher and still be normal. So I think that advertising does a disservice by showing um, women, men, whomever, with body mass indexes that aren't exactly in the normal range. A typical models, when you do the research to find out what their body mass index is, 17, which in our book would be malnourished, anywhere from 17 to 18. Once in a while, you'll find a um, model that's about a 19 body mass index, which is right on the cusp of being normal. So I think advertising does do a disservice. And so what do you think that main disservice is? Because I, I mean, do you think that they just observe these people that on, on the, you know, ads and just think that's unachievable? So why even try? Um, I think it's just frustrating to see what, what someone looks like when we are all different shapes and sizes and that that is really, truly not necessarily an achievable goal for most people. You know, achievable, achievable goal would be to be a healthy, um, weight and what healthy weight is, is different for like we said, from one person to another based on their body mass index. Um, getting back to the fad diets, I think fad diets and quick weight loss schemes just add to the notion that there's some unlocked mystery out there that needs to be discovered to fix the obesity problem. And um, I call them Band-Aid approaches. It's like putting a Band-Aid on an, a, a wound. Um, yeah, it covers it, but is it really fixing the underlying problem? And that the notion that this is going to be quick is just plain nonsense. But people seem to want pills. They want that quick fix. We live in a quick fix society. That's why we have so many drive-thrus, drive-thrus at banks, drive-thrus at fast food restaurants. Uh, I'm surprised they don't have drive-thrus at doctor's offices yet, but I bet they it's will. coming. They okay. Will. They may, they may not. Yeah. And people want that quick fix. So when people come in and approach me and say, I want to lose weight. What pills do you recommend? And I tell them, I don't really recommend pills. I'll use them temporarily as a jump start, but I think they're overrated. They're overpriced and you can't stay on them forever. So what happens when you get off? So it's not about dieting. I like to approach it as a lifestyle modification. So someone's lost weight. The biggest problem is, how do you keep that weight off and prevent them from gaining weight and gaining more than when they started in the first place? What were, are your approaches on the outpatient in your private practice? How do you even wrap your head around that? Well, the first thing I do is I always get to know someone, just like I'm sure you get to know your patients. And I ask them, why are you coming to me now? You know, has this problem, is it recent? Did the doctor say something? You must go on a diet. You know, when they come in with that, that, that I, the doctor told me I had to go on a diet, I almost want to cringe because they've already associated that word with denial, deprivation, negativity. This is going to taste terrible, you know, that whole mantra. So I like to spend time and just find out why now, what changed? Did you have a change in your health? Um, 
Did you have an an enlightening moment where you just said, yeah, I really am not happy with the way I eat or the way I look or the way I feel. And so I decided to take it upon myself. I'm looking for that. And then I ask also, where in the list of priorities can you place this right now? You know, out of about one to five, where is losing weight and um, eating a healthy diet? Where is that in your list? You know, is it number one? Is it number two, number three? If it's down below five, I usually say, you know what? You can be very successful when this can be a priority for you, maybe one, two, or three. But if, um, you know, you got a divorce going on and you just lost your job and you got all these other factors, that's probably not going to be the best time for you to work on losing weight. And I think that you give them the opportunity to feel like they can be successful and not unsuccessful by approaching it that way. So in other words, you kind of gauge the importance level. You gauge their motivation mm-hmm. by asking, why are you here? Mm-hmm. Then you gauge how important this process is to them. And then do you at some point have to take an assessment of what they're currently doing? Or Definitely. Okay. And then do you find that some of the newer tools with calorie counting are helpful? Or does is that another barrier to, to people not feeling confident in technology and everything else? <laughs> No, I ask them how they feel about doing something where they're accountable because mm-hmm. they have to be accountable to themselves. I don't want them just to say, oh, I'm going to go see the dietitian tomorrow. I better like, you know, be really on task for the next, you know, few days before I go in. I want them to be accountable when they're not with me. So do you have them use an app? Yes. What's your favorite app? I like Lose It, mm-hmm. but there's many out there. They're free. I don't, you know, you don't have to pay money to have um, a decent app, but I like the apps where um, I teach them how to use it. And of course, if they don't have a smartphone or they're not comfortable with that, we squash that idea. We go to another plan, but the um, lose it apps or um, my fitness pal, where you can actually scan the item and get a barcode reading it takes literally 10 seconds to do. And then the information that pops back to you is so crucial because then you can actually have a starting point and you can say, and that's what I like to do. I don't, I don't tell them to change much when I first meet them. I just want to see where they're at. And I explain to them, we're going on a trip. And if you are going to go on a trip from Florida to California and you're going to drive you're not going to just get in the car and go. You're going to pack clothes. You're going to get maps or GPS. You're going to kind of have an idea which state you may stop in. And you will then be able to have a successful trip. You may make wrong turns, but you will not start your trip over because you make a mistake. And that's what I try to teach them with this approach as well with behavioral strategies. We're going to make mistakes, but we're going to learn the tools that are going to get you from point A to point B. If I put patients in control of their diabetes by having them check their blood sugars every day, they feel that their disease is more manageable. They know it makes their numbers go up. They know it makes their glucoses go down. How do you as a nutritionist, other than a scale, and have them daily weight, put 
patients in control of their own disease? I give them budgets. Just like we have a monetary budget, a bank account, um, when you go shopping, I give if if they're able to comprehend the information, I give them budget. So if they're diabetic, I explain to them about carbohydrate, what foods have what amounts of carbohydrate, and then how I figure out with them. We calculate what amount of carbohydrate they should have per meal, per snack. I want to hear more about that. We need to take a commercial break. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to our show. We are here with Susan Dermarkarian, and our show today is called Tighten Your Waistband. We are talking about dieting and nutrition and weight loss. And right before we took our break, we were talking to Susan about her concept of giving patients 
budgets. And she was just telling us that if it's a diabetic that she's working with, she'll give them a carbohydrate budget. And what if it's just a non-diabetic dieter? How do you, what is the budget concept for them? Well, I talk to them about, first of all, what kind of exercise they are doing because, um, and I talk about what they're, they're I, I set up what we call SMART goals with them, um, which is an acronym for um, the S being specific. So I ask them, well, the SMART goals stand for S is the specific, M is measurable, A is action-oriented, R is realistic, and T is time you know, the time frame. So I would ask them, what, what do you, what do you expect to lose? What are your goals for losing weight? And I try to right there from the start, see how realistic they are or how unrealistic they are. Cause what do you think are some realistic goals for most people is, you know, a certain number of pounds within Two a certain pounds a week if they're exercising Okay, eight pounds a month. And if they tell me 15, 20, I, I, Stop right there and we talk about what's realistic. Mm -hmm. Because if they're real, if they're they're um if their belief is that they're gonna lose 20 pounds in a month and I don't clarify that and it does not happen, I will never see them again. You know, they'll go home, they say, well, I'm not losing weight, and, and I'm only losing a pound or two. And then you don't see them again. So you've lost them. So you've done them in service by not talking about specific goals and how realistic they are. So if you're setting a, a calorie budget, for example, mm -hmm. these apps that we use, Lose It, My Fitness Pal, mm -hmm. they will calculate yes. your estimated daily caloric expenditure. Exactly. Okay. And that's usually based on how much you weigh, but your, B, your current BMI. So the smaller you are, the lower your numbers are. Right. Do you, you mentioned that you also use a specific ratio of carbohydrates and proteins and fats. Why is that? Um, well, because I think so many people have no clue what portion sizes um, they consume and what is considered a portion size. Yeah, it's so amazing that you look at menus from the 1950s and 1960s with their portion sizes. And I think in the 80s and 90s, we started supersizing everything. You know, the Big Mac is now a bigger Mac. The large fry is a large, larger fry. And the 24-ounce soda, how many calories are in a 24-ounce Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola? I, I don't want a brand name here if I can help it, but in a soft drink that's filled with sugar. I don't know. I mean, a bottle of Pepsi is like 200 and something calories. 250 in like 20 ounces. Mm -hmm. And and like you said, um, 20 years ago, an average soda size, if you went through a drive through fast food, was about six and a half ounces. It's like juice glasses. Like yeah. you go to an antique store yeah. and you look at juice glasses six and they're ounces. like shot glasses. That's all. They're probably like the size of our now shot glasses. <laughs> yeah, right. juice glass. Six and a half um, ounces, which is about 85 calories. Now, um, 20 ounces is 250 calories. So um, if you think about a meal, com you know, composing of all the food typically should be around four, four, 500 calories, 250 from a drink. 
a sugared beverage yeah. is half of your meal. I mean, a McDonald's breakfast sandwich is typically going to be four to 500 calories and that's it. No sides, no drinks, no right. nothing else. Right. So when my patients and friends and colleagues and listeners ask me, what is the best diet? My approach has always been it's calories in versus calories out. If you take more calories in than you put out, you're going to gain weight. 3,500 calories or kcals is a pound. And if you lose 3,500 calories, and when you said two pounds a week, you've got to cut that, your intake, by 7,000 calories in a week. You can do it with exercise. You can do it with dieting. But unless you cut 7,000 calories, you're not going to lose those two pounds a week. Is that that's, pretty accurate. That's pretty accurate. Yes, yeah. it is. But I mean, that. logic doesn't mean that it works, right? And so like we can know these facts, we can know what the numbers mean, but it seems like the expertise of your job is actually making that a tangible goal, making that make sense. So when you talk about 7,000 calories per week equals 1,000 calories per day equals what what kind of food? Like two frappuccinos? I mean, how do you explain to patients, you know, what types of food you cut out first in order to lose the poundage? Or is that totally not your approach? Um, uh, no, that is my approach. I never say never. I think that if you say, you know, you can never have that, um, that's almost I get the person that wants to turn around and go exactly and do that. But I look at empty calories, calories that don't provide any nutrition and actually may stimulate ap appetite. Like? Like sugar, uh, sugary foods and beverages, um, high carbohydrate things with no other value in them. Simple carbohydrates, simple, not complex carbohydrates. Not complex, okay. simple carbohydrates. And do you feel like sugary tasting beverages like diet sodas, are kind of in that same class, even though they themselves don't have any calories because it's a sugary stimulation of the brain? Well, I think that for some people that is, um, you know, for a diabetic, that's an option that they have to rely on. We know that sugar substitutes have been FDA approved. The problem and what some people feel is that the sugar substitu substitutes prevent the activation of the food reward pathway. So if you find that every time you drink a diet soda, you crave more sugar, then I would say change to a non, um, uh, a different kind of beverage like a, um, a, a seltzer water, a non-nutritive, non-caloric uh, seltzer water or a Perrier or iced tea, unsweetened iced tea. You can have other beverages if you feel that that does stimulate some kind of, um, you know, craving. So if I looked at all foods and I can generally put them in the three main categories, either carbohydrates, mm -hmm. proteins, mm -hmm. or fats. Mm -hmm. And then there's, I guess, fiber, which isn't really absorbed. It just kind of uh, helps out by uh, increasing uh, or actually decreasing transit time. So from the time it goes into your mouth until it comes out processed as excrement, uh, then we have fiber that helps us do that. Carbohydrates, protein, fat. What's the perfect mix uh, for a healthy individual? That doesn't want to lose weight? 
that wants to maintain weight? Well, that, let's say that does want to lose weight. That does want to lose weight. Okay. So if you're asking me what percentages, what budget I would give them, I would take down the carbohydrate from um, and, and someone that wants to maintain weight, the carbohydrate would be about 50%. So 50% carbohydrate, 20% protein, 30% fat. Someone needs to lose weight. I take that down to about 40, 45% carbohydrate, 30% protein and 30% fat. Typically, Americans may consume anywhere like 60, 65% carbohydrates. Um, and so you can see where you find out where the, the client is and you slowly back them down if they need to lose. So them. to help our listeners even understand this a little bit more, you know, when you read food labels, everything's in grams and grams have to be converted or everything's in calories and, or, and, or grams and it has to be converted. What's the good rule of thumb? Five calories per every gram of carbohydrate, uh, 4.95 around that nine for fat four. and four, four for carbs, nine for fat. So fat has the most calories per gram. Well, five, five grams in a serving of fat. Okay. Yeah. And then protein is typically around seven grams per ounce. Okay. And an ounce is 30 grams. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if, if we go the other way, because, you know, you, you read these labels and it will say so many grams of uh, carbohydrate, how do we convert that to calories and knowing what times but, by four times by four and times by what for fat uh, times nine That's times nine. nine. Yeah. And protein times four. Okay, got it. But I think what's really great about technology these days is that we're not doing math, right? Because when we plug our food into these apps, it's it going to give us a pie graph that's going to show us what percentage of and what I, is what. That's what I love. Yeah. And so, you know, from a from a short person's perspective, I feel like, you know, if you're given 1,200 calories a day for weight loss, right. you know, I, I'm not worried about what percentage is what. I'm starving. And there's no food for me because I got no <laughs> calories left. So your role in that is to give me examples of food that has lots of water, lots of fiber, lots of fiber, so that I can stay full on the like nothing I'm allowed to eat per day. You or know, I would also encourage you to see if you're eating enough protein because protein is what controls appetite. And so if you don't have enough protein, you, you may feel hungrier all the time. But if you know, oh, every time I have some protein, I feel like my appetite is in check, you may not, you may feel 1200 is, is fine for you. Now, I think a, another question that we hear a lot of in our primary care practice is um, people that maybe went their whole life never really worrying about their weight, eating, quote, whatever I wanted, and then all of a sudden they find themselves to be whatever their age is now, and it's not so easy anymore. And the interesting thing about that is however old they are, they're older than me, so I don't understand. That's how that works, just so you know. So do but, caloric needs decrease with age? That's yes. what really what you're asking. Yes. Yes. No, yes. that's not what you're asking? 
<laughs> and you too will be there one day. What do I want for dinner tonight, Ira? Do you know that answer? No, I'm just kidding. I, I'm um, sorry, say that again? Yeah, so, calor so caloric <laughs> needs decrease with age. Yeah, they do. And wouldn't you say that our habits is is the main difference between the 20-year-old who doesn't seem to can eat whatever they want versus the 60 year old that has to pay attention to everything. I always tell people like when you were 20, you probably weren't thinking about food, right? You're thinking about everything else. Like where are we going tonight? Dancing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I think that what happens is life catches up with us. And now all of our social events are around food yep. and breakfast is real. And especially if you have a desk job, right? For the mm -hmm. working crowd, it's like, Oh, when is lunch? Okay. When do I get to leave? When is snack? Right. And so maybe taking some of that focus away from food or giving us some lower calorie things to snack on. Right. Are you asking me for, yeah. lower, oh, for lower calorie things to snack on? The other thing that, you know, you make me think about is as we get older, yes, you have to understand your metabolism decreases about 7% every decade. So if you eat the same way, some people say, I don't eat any differently than I did, you know, when I was 30 or 40. And I say, yes, I, I, I understand. That That is what happens, though, as we get older. Our body starts to slow down, and, and so you have to compensate by cutting back on portions and saying, hmm, maybe when I go out to eat, I can share an entree and we each get our own salad. Or, hmm, maybe I need to look at how many times I eat out during the week. I find in my private population, that's one of the things I ask before they come in to see me is to fill out some forms. And on it, it says, how many times do you eat at breakfast? How many times do you eat at lunch? How many times do you eat at dinner? And then we do the math. If it says four breakfast and five lunches and four dinners, we add that up and divide by 21 meals a week and say you're eating out whatever that is, 60% of the time. And why is that relevant? How many more calories do people typically consume in meals outside the home? Usually double. 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 A lot of hidden calories. A lot of hidden calories, a lot of extra calories, bread at the table before the meal. Then we all want an appetizer. Then it's the entree and the vegetables and the starch. And then there's dessert. And then there's the alcohol. So, I mean, your meal that should be around 500 calories is now more like 12, 1500. And then it's a lot of calories at one time. What happens to all those extra calories that you just consumed? Where do they go? Hmm. Fad diets versus real diets with Susan Dermer-Carrion right here <laughs> on WSTU. There seem to be so many fad diets. Uh, they, they seem to be coming out every week. There have been some really good diets that I recommend to my patients. Uh, the like, Zone Diet okay. by Barry, Barry yeah. Sears. Yeah. Uh, the South Beach Diet. Yeah. Catchy name, but... It's a sound diet. It's a variation of the zone diet yeah. because it balances, like we talked about earlier. And I thought Dr. Leanne was going to strangle me when we talked about those calculations because you can get them on apps. But it's basically a balance between the carbohydrates, the protein, uh, and the fats. What diets do you, as a nutrition expert, consider good diets? Well, I like those two that you mentioned. Um, I also like the DASH diet. Um, the, it stands for dietary approaches to stop hypertension and it's heavy on, um, it emphasizes fruits and vegetables and legumes and lean meats, low fat dairy. 
It's, it limits sugar, sugary beverages and sugary foods, refined foods, limits saturated and trans fats, which we really haven't talked much about, but those are the harmful fats, the artery clogging fats. And it also encourages potassium and magnesium, uh, protein and fiber, which we know helps with blood pressure. The other diet I like is the Mediterranean diet. Again, lots of legumes, fruits, vegetables, fish, olive oil, healthy fats, um, not a lot of red meat, um, not a lot of sweets. Um, so I would think that the positive side of having a diet is that after I, you know, we do, we do a lot of weight loss counseling in primary care. And so after I send people home with an app to kind of gauge where they are, Sometimes when I just give the initial introduction about reducing their calorie intake by however much and, you know, the specifics of how much less carbohydrate I want them to eat, sometimes what happens is they'll come in and say, this is just too much freedom. Like they, some people I think like the idea of a diet because it places some restrictions. So they know they're on a diet. They know that this is a no food. This is a yes food. And I think for some people that structure is necessary, but I also kind of feel like one of the problems with diets is that it, if you're say on a Mediterranean diet and you're supposed to be eating my favorite quote, a lot of chicken and fish. I'm like, no, I think you eat a lot of everything. That's why we're here. But that but, doesn't mean fried chicken right, and fried right, right. fish. But, but that what happens is that when you're on a diet that kind of emphasizes certain food groups, but yet you have this cultural norm that says that breakfast is a carbohydrate, I think it's really hard to mold your lifestyle into something else. What, it, what do you find are some challenges when presenting people with diets as a whole versus no diet? and leaving it up to free form. Do you kind of feel your way through that with each individual? It depends on the individual. Some people, you just know from the get-go, they're going to do well with an app. They, you know, know, they get what you're trying to explain and they go home and, and they come back with good questions. Other people, like you say, need more structure. And any structure is better than no structure. So you may tell them, okay, Let's talk about how many servings of grains you can have a day. And, and then you go over what a serving is. Um, a serving of rice is a third of a cup, not two cups, which is six servings. Um, then you might tell them this is how many you can have three ounces of lean meat, which is the palm of your hand. You can have a cup of vegetables at a meal, which is your fist. I like to use what we call the uh, my plate as a as a, a vision because it separates the plate into four quadrants. Half the plate, so two quadrants are vegetables. And then one quarter of uh, the plate, another quadrant is the protein, and then the final quadrant, a quarter of the plate is a starch. So visually, you know, you can see if you're putting pasta over the whole entire plate, that is not a quarter of the plate. Mm -hmm. And that is obviously way too much. So the salad bar Ruby Tuesdays is not meant to be a crouton bar, correct? Or a salad dressing bar or a cheese or a... Seed. seed Sunflower seed a bar. A tablespoon. <laughs> when was the last seed? time you went to Ruby Tuesdays, Ira? Because I'm in there a lot, all right? I, I walked by there last <laughs> week. 
walked I by I, there. I, I didn't go in. I, I walked this, by. This is a little uh, nudge at Iris Fine Dining. Oh, my God. Right. She, she always makes fun of me every show because I'm such a foodie. I went in New York you. last week. Yeah, I, I see I, you in two restaurants. I've seen them at two restaurants. <laughs> the Dermarcarians. I've run into them at District. I've run into them at the Galford. Shout out for both District and the Galford. Yeah. Two great Stewart restaurants. But they both have healthy options on the menu. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that it seems like the more money you're spending on food, the smaller your portions are. I think that's a that's like a funny thing where it's like you start at the bottom where where, you know, you're not paying a lot for your food, but you're not getting that much. It's like a what, like a food truck. And then you go to the Olive Garden where you're not you're paying like middle of the road, but you get everything. Never endless breadsticks. Salad bowl. <laughs> and then you and then you end up at like these fine dining restaurants where your whole entree is like one thing in the middle of the plate, but it's real pretty. It is. And <laughs> and you don't gain weight. And you spend all your money there, so you have no nothing left for dessert. That's right. So you don't That's gain weight. solution. This is the IRA diet. So so the cheat days. You know, everyone wants to know, when can I have a cheat day? And what is a cheat day? Does that mean it's a free-for-all? You can eat everything? Americans eat a lot every day. Thanksgiving. Does that just give people permission to eat more? And what do you tell... What should we be telling our patients about Thanksgiving, turkey, stuffing, sweet potato, pies? Well, during this time, especially with, you know, Thanksgiving and then you got the holidays in December, I try to tell my clients that maybe maintaining your weight during this time is a good goal. You know, that way they have that flexibility to have something and not have total guilt about it. If yeah. And you said that before you said that, you know, when you start off on this journey that we're going to make mistakes, but we can't just turn around and end the trip. And I think that that's an excellent, you know, you, you can see that in your mind that that's where a lot of us get really thrown off because we're on a diet. We mess up. The diet's blown. Go right back to what we were I'll doing before. Monday. I'll yeah. start Monday. Yeah. How many times? So have Thanksgiving you is one day. Ira. Okay. So, that's the answer. Okay. So what you're saying is stay on the road, stay on the trip. But take an occasional detour. That's what I'm hearing from you. Well, don't you take an occasional detour? I take an drive? occasional detour. Yes, we all take occasional detours. The other way to look at it is you're not on a tightrope where you walk along and if you fall off, what do you do? You have to go back to the beginning, climb the ladder and get it to the top. You're in a hallway. You're in a hallway. You're going to, you know, sometimes go down the middle of the hallway. You try to stay in your lane, but sometimes you veer off to the left. Sometimes you're not paying attention. You go right, but you're in your lane and you continue down. You learn and you adapt and you find different strategies for challenges. You you encounter. So I think that um, what a lot of our actual research has said is that the Weight Watchers diet is one of the more successful diets through time. And I think that it actually accounts for these types of events, right, by giving us spillover points every mm -hmm. week. How do you feel about the Weight Watchers diet? What are the pros and cons in your mind? Um, I think it's a, it's a sensible diet. I think that um, there's a few messages I don't care for, such as you can eat unlimited amount of fruits. 
Um, because I think that's really um, not a good message, especially if you have diabetes. And I know, um, you know, Weight Watchers aren't trained to talk about certain diseases per se. It's more of a general approach. And so that's what they do well at, being general. But if you have someone that needs more specific, I think that you have to to fine tune that a little bit. But I think as a whole, it's great for, um, like you say, it, you're accountable because you have to keep points. It's not calories, but the points are based on calories. And the points also include the fiber and the protein fiber. content of right. a food by giving those foods fewer right. points. And you have to look things up. You have to be responsible. If you go out to eat, you have to know how many points is that. Um, I like the fact that they have a group approach and that they meet and they talk about issues that they're having or Thanksgiving's coming up. How do you handle that? Um, you know, what's the best way to, um, you know, handle a birthday party, a holiday, eating out? Where do you go to eat out that's healthier than somewhere else? I, I like that about them. Well, you know, you're so informative. And I wanted to talk about bariatric surgery and the special dietary needs, because after you've had this weight loss surgery, and these are for very large people, people who are very large and might have their own, you know, special needs. They can only eat a tablespoon at a time of food because they've had this total rerouting of their stomach. Would you come back and talk to us about that? Can we sure. do a part two to this show? <laughs> yes, I and I also want to talk about people who can't gain weight. You know, we, we limit it to the obese people, but we want to talk about the very thin people who need to gain weight too. I think that's it for today. We're going to have to end the show now. Thank that was probably you, our Sue. fastest show. It was. It was guest. great. You are a great guest. Susan Dermarkarian, nutritionist, nutrition expert, RDN, with Options Family Home Health Care and her own private practice. Come back and see us.